Hi everyone. Before we get into it, a brief announcement. I've been offering some short seminar discussions of thinkers who interest me through a company called Speakeasy, which runs open courses for the general public. So if you're interested in Blake's and my discussion of Foucault in this episode, you may also be interested in the seminar I'm running on April 14th and 21st through Speakeasy, where we'll be discussing Foucault's relevance to the age of COVID and why he remains such a controversial figure today. Anyway, there's a link in the show notes if you'd like to learn more about this. Thanks for listening, and on to the show. Welcome to the Outsider Theory Podcast, where we explore the mutations of theories outside of the authorized spaces of intellectual life, as well as the ever-alluring figure of the outsider. If you're interested in this project, please subscribe to the podcast, and follow my work at OutsiderTheory.com and at OutsiderTheory on Twitter. Blake Smith is a Harper Schmidt Fellow at the University of Chicago, an editor at Age of Revolutions, and a contributing writer at Tablet, as well as a contributor to many other publications, including recently American Affairs, Palladium, Washington Examiner, just to name a few. So thanks for coming on, Blake. And thanks for having me. So I invited you because I sort of have come to see you as, as something of a kindred spirit, even though our academic backgrounds are somewhat different. Um, and the reason for that is that, like me, you're often writing about canonical theory against the grain of how it's usually understood or thought about by both admirers and detractors. And you're also doing so in largely non-academic venues, so for for audiences, um, you know, both inside and outside of academia. So that's that's sort of the um, intersection of our of our projects that I see. So would you say, I mean, first of all, is that an adequate description of what you've been trying to do? Or does it need some modification? And second of all, what what brought you to do the sorts of writing that you've been doing recently? Yeah, so I mean, I, I think that's a that's a, a very generous and uh, yeah, I can't say generous and fair. Those things are in contradiction. So it's it's a it's a generous exaggeration of uh, yeah of, of a fair thing that uh, of a fair description of what I'm trying to do. Um, I mean, right. So my my background is as a historian of 18th century France. So I mean, a historian of the Enlightenment, uh, and so. I mean, during my graduate study and first postdoc, I'd been interested in a kind of distant way in, you know, Foucault's critique of the Enlightenment, in thinking about these uh, sort of from the 80s and 90s on debates about, um, you know, the Enlightenment as essentially racist, colonialist, whatever, whatever, um, but hadn't necessarily thought that it was it was useful to try to intervene in that or to, uh, you know, and, 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 and in no way was I uh, or have ever been like politically involved in anything. So it, uh, yeah, it didn't seem interesting or urgent to, to take that into the public. Um, but yeah, then, so starting in 2018, uh, I got this job at the University of Chicago teaching like it's modern social thought in a sort of great book style. Uh, and so it, it's people like Fanon, Beauvoir, Foucault, um, and teaching it in, in the text in this way uh, sort of forces you to think about, well, what's the contemporary relevance? Students, do we see this in our own lives? Um, so, you know, the, the kind of practice of thinking about that with them then got me to think, well, oh, yeah, in fact, okay, so I have like convinced myself by trying to convince them that there is something relevant about all of this. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I think we've all been on our own uh journeys of pessimism and despair in the last year or year and a half. Uh, yeah, confinement really broke my brain uh, starting in March of last year. And, and I felt like, well, 
not that this is necessarily doing anything practical or politically helpful or whatever, um, but the only thing that I can do, even if it's it's not actually substantive, is is writing essays about uh, what I think the sort of text coming out of the Enlightenment and critiquing the Enlightenment that that I've been reading and that I'm interested in and you know, that I know something about um, what I think those can, if not if not provide uh, help us provide concrete solutions for our problems, at least delineate the kind of problems um, that we have um, with, with a bit more precision. So um, yeah, I started last last spring, so I was teaching Foucault um, in the spring, um, and I organized the, the whole course around Foucault and biopolitics, because yeah, clearly that was that was relevant. We were reading Foucault anyway, but I was like, okay, we'll ditch all the non-biopolitics stuff, and we're just going to, you know, um, mainline bio, biopolitics. Um, and then I felt like, well, I, I ought to write this stuff up as I'm thinking about it with students. And yeah, I think there were three or four sort of Foucault and COVID pieces that I did then. And yeah, none of that like solves our problem. But I think, you know, what we can see in Foucault's work, say from the, the birth of the clinic in, in 1963 to his death in 1984, I mean, he's, he's writing about um, sort of public health issues even until the end in a, in a minor way. Um, you know, we can see in that a really clear sense that from the beginning, the very notion of a public health enterprise as it develops in late 18th century France is in conflict with the liberal premises of enlightenment reform and of the French. Um, and that's maybe a manageable conflict, right? We can, and we can look in the last 250 years at all the ways that this um, irresolvable tension can be maybe strategically contained or strategically concealed and then why we would want to conceal it in some moments and, and you know, open it back up in others. Um, but the idea that there's, that there's no problem or that you know, one of these polls can just cancel the other out, that we can have like pure liberal freedom and not have to worry about biopolitics, or we should just do biopolitics and you know, thank you, Dr. Fauci. Um, you know, that's, yeah, that's, 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 not, uh, that's not possible. So your most recent essay on Foucault and this, that in some ways tries to summarize your projects with the, the previous pieces that you've written on his work in the past year, um, where you uh, you describe it in this most recent one, which is called Foucault through Strauss, um, as a series of articles attempting to wrest Foucault's legacy away from those who misappropriate it and to encourage conservatives to reconsider his insights into a variety of topics. So, but, and then in this piece, um, Foucault through Strauss, as the title suggests, you bring together two important and influential theorists who are who are not often thought about um, together and whose admirers are probably quite likely to view each other with hostility. Um, I mean, I certainly remember when I, I mean, I was in graduate school back in, I guess, uh, the late Bush era and then early Obama era, but obviously there was a lot of discussion of the Straussians back then as this kind of sinister cabal who were, you know, um, driving the Bush administration's nefarious agenda. And uh, it, it was interesting to me at the time because I, you know, I, I was not very um, well informed about Strauss, but I had actually had a Straussian professor in, uh, in college who I, had, who I had liked quite a lot. And so I, I was curious enough to try to inform myself a bit better, especially in the comparative literature environment I was in, where I think he was just seen as a total bogeyman. Um, but, oh, yeah, and, but but as a Hermann, yeah. you know, as a reader, yeah. he's one of the great 
Right. I mean, for me, this is the funnest. Is that like, yeah, he's he's a bonkers reader, just yeah. the way that like '90s theory exactly. you know, has this right. like crazy readings of text. Like, yes, yes, yeah. Well, and right, and this was, I mean, my my thought back then was, you know, my department had a lot of of deconstructionists, like of Derridians in it. And my thought back then was, and I mean, I remembered back to being in these um, seminars in, in college with my Straussian professor who had like studied with Alan Bloom. And, um, you know, it, it was not all that different in terms of approach from being in a, a seminar with a, a Derridian. Um, oh, yeah, so and, I, and, and, you know, uh, Eve Sedgwick in like the, an early part of epistemology of the closet um, I think was one of the first people to remark on this. Like she has studied with Bloom as an mm. undergrad in Chicago. And she's like, yeah, I mean, this guy was like totally nuts for a variety of reasons. And I mean, she talks about the epistemology of the closet going on right. in his whole thing. Um, but like his techniques of reading that he's trying to teach students, what she does in English grad school afterward, like it's it's the same, right? It's just that somehow they get coded as being different worlds. Yeah, so that that always fascinated me going back to um, when I was in grad school, right? That that for some reason the Straussians had become this sort of world of their own that were usually coded as very conservative um, and were, were viewed with hostility by the sort of you know French theory types, but that it was easy to see that there were quite a few similarities um, between them, not only in their, um, I mean, and this is more of a tangent, but not only in their, um, their sort of methods, but also just, I mean, particularly with the Derridians in their kind of weird esoteric kind of clubbiness. Um, oh yeah. Can I get, get the, 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 the cultish atmosphere? I mean, I, I said yeah. this on Twitter the other day, like half as a joke, but maybe it's, maybe it's true. And maybe you could think about the relation between like the hermeneutics and the, the performance of the seminar, because I, I think, you know, they're both post-Heideggerians, the Straussians yeah. and, the, and the Derridians, and they both do this kind of mystagogic um, inside jokes. And I mean, that, that's the shit that I can't stand, right? Like I've, I've been in one sort of Derridian seminar with Sam um, Weber at Northwestern and um, in Chicago, one with Heinrich Meyer, and both of them were like intolerable in this like air of deference to the increasingly senile master and these, you know, these weird little winks to uh, secondary tertiary figures one hasn't read. And, you know? right. <laughs> but, but undergrads eat it up, right? Because then you get to yeah. feel like you're part of a club, like you can learn the moves and become a genius. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. And I mean, this, yeah, just the, the social dimension of it, because the, the Straussian who I studied with in college, who, you know, was a great professor, but he, he actually would hold, he would continue to hold seminars for his graduates. Like people would come back to campus just to take these seminars with him. So it became this kind of lifelong club that you were a member of. And then I saw similar things just in terms of how the Derridians kind of, um, you know, were forged in these few departments where they were, you know, the, the real kind of insider spaces. And then they, they kind of continued to have all these events and symposia where they would all get back together and yeah i mean they 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 have um there's a bit of a grooming vibe <laughs> to mm, all of it <laughs> i mean you know you um you you tell you tell a kid you know um that they are some member of some potential you know elite who can through their mastery of a handful of text then comment on everything like yeah. what should we do about around well i read thucydides in college so you know i know just what to do uh yeah of course then they will be hooked on you for life, right? I mean, it's the, there's, yeah, there's an overlap of, um, 
the social techniques of Straussians of you know theory people and child molesters, but you know then the latter yeah. don't have the hermeneutical chops. That's the that's the difference. Right, right, right. Yeah. So anyway, this this whole way that Strauss, you know, as as you point out in this piece, really comes out of the same hermeneutic traditions that shapes a lot of the major figures of what gets called French theory, including Foucault, as well as Derrida, right, that they're all immersed in in Heidegger in particular. And um, that, you know, that at least genealogically, there's a strong shared lineage. Um, So, but nevertheless, again, there's a kind of um, cultural and ideological hostility between these camps as they exist in at least U.S. academia today. And so, you know, I think proposing, as you do in this, that um, the recovery of Strauss's post-war political philosophical agenda in America, creating an intellectual elite self-conscious about the limitations of our regime, but committed to its defense and capable of attaching a new generation of rising political elites to their noble lives, may pass through Foucault. So, you know, this this is a pretty striking statement just in relation to how these two thinkers are, are usually received today. And I'm just curious, yeah, I mean, beyond the sort of um, genealogical shared lineage that we've just been discussing and the sort of cult, well, we were more comparing Stra- Straussians and Derridians, but, um, you know, the, the let's say, kind of cliquish um, academic cults that might gather around these types of thinkers. Um, why, why are people wrong to, to not see a certain um, resonance between these two influential thinkers? Yeah, so I mean, what, what had initially gotten me started even thinking in these terms is um, just before COVID, so in, in February of last year, um, I was invited to go to St. John's Santa Fe to give a talk on Beauvoir, who I'd also been I don't even think doing like an, an esoteric reading of, but there's like a, a sort of forgotten essay of hers from 46, where she defends the death penalty, you know, thinking about this and why, right, if if uh, the personal is political and if our feelings are important, then my feeling that someone deserves to die is also uh, uh, an important political feeling. Um, so I went and, you know, I gave this talk and um, they're just adding her to their canon because they... Even, even they are succumbing to the pressures of wokeness, so they have to now add like a, a third woman to their four-year reading program. Um, but it, you know, the reading stops in like 1950. Um, so yeah, like Beauvoir, and then I think Baldwin or something will be, you know, they'll, they'll, have, they'll have the black guy, and then like that will be the end. Um, and they were surprised that I was, uh, yeah, at the time, like working on this, this Foucault stuff and excited about that, like, you know, oh, what are you teaching in the spring? Oh, Foucault, he's great, blah, blah, blah. And, and they really um, had not read, were not interested in, um, the same with Derrida, um, which I it seemed really, really strange because um, the people there were all like lovely, brilliant, very open-minded, um, and, and yet had a kind of prejudice against uh, this theory that, right, as you say, not only in its style, but really in its, its history, its historicity is like just you know, is, is a brother of the thing that they're interested in. Um, so that, that seemed really strange. And I wanted to keep thinking about that. So, you know, how we could read, how we could read Foucault and Strauss together, but also, yeah, you know, thinking of the sociological problem, there's the continuing mystery of how is it that uh, critique, you know, whether like specifically Foucaultian or this kind of 
uh, Frankfurt School critique, which I mean, Foucault was also inspired by, or you know, however we might think about like critique and, and theory in this way, um, has become the discourse into which elite college students in the social sciences and humanities are uh, interpolated, by which they're shaped. Uh, and that, of course, then the, the function of this is not to somehow undermine the regime or uh, you know, uh, weaken their elite power, but uh, you know, they, they learn these tools of critique as part of their performance of becoming elite subjects. And that seems like purely ironical or purely paradoxical, or an, another way that the, uh, the, another kind of wrong take uh, is to see it as some kind of sick plot to destroy, you know, what is good and, and traditional in America, right? So like either that they're unironically carrying forward some nihilistic program of critique, or that they are, uh, you know, ironically just evacuating the, the philosophical content of critique. So neither of these seem like they can really be true. Um, there's got to be some kind of, you know, what, what you talked about is like the performativity of theory, right? So this theory is somehow both doing something to these people, like it is somehow changing them, um, but also they're using it to you know, acquire prestige and power. Um, and I think, I mean, you know, the, the sociologist, right? So someone like Bourdieu maybe could help us think about that, but I don't know, that 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 seems less compelling to me. Um, and we have many, especially coming from the right and center, kind of bad pseudo-sociological understandings of what this is doing. So, you know, there's, now I forget this guy's name, uh, called them luxury beliefs. Uh, you know, the, the like the tools of, of critique are these, uh, yeah, they're, they're just sort of status symbols. And so they're not really doing anything except um, signaling people's membership in the club. Um, that seems like that can't be right. How can we understand this mix of, mm, is this, this mix of things that the newly democratized, Americanized, massified kind of critique and theory from the 80s and 90s uh, that's in our college campuses, how can we understand what that's doing? And I think, you know, I, I've, I've just started to pursue this line, but I think Strauss can be helpful because, right, that's a case where um, Strauss's sort of approach, uh, I mean, it doesn't just form a neoconservative clique, it, it really shapes, um, I mean, the way that the, the, the sort of class that I'm teaching, right, at the University of Chicago, um, was sort of invented in the 80s by, a, um, by Moish Postone, this kind of Western Marxist value theory guy, but the, the form, like what we're doing in the class, is a descendant of Strauss, right, like is something that was set up um, I mean, across the campus in the 30s, um, sort of this great books reform. And, and there are many, um, many schools that were shaped by this, many, you know, programs in political theory that were shaped by this. So at, at undergraduate, graduate, at all kinds of levels, um, he and his acolytes um, shaped American education. And I think, yeah, maybe thinking about the relationship between theory and practice in Strauss is a model for thinking about what American French theory or what, what critique uh, has been doing for us in this past generation or so. Um, and I mean, I think, yeah, the, the project of thinking through what has been happening, I mean, it's something that, right, I mean, Cousset helps us with, but I think there's still, there's still more to do with that. Um, but yeah, in the, in, the, in the essay, I wanted to think at least, well, what, if it's true that there's this resemblance, then maybe there's a way that these people like Foucault could also be used to um, stabilize the things about uh, our regime that might be worth stabilizing, right? Um, that that we don't have to think of them as either purely negative, negative in the sense of like, you know, just, you're doing critical criticism, right? 
or as, um, as having no effect, as just being a kind of empty virtue signaling. But there might be a way of um, using the tools of critique uh, as a kind of esoteric instrument in the same way that, you know, from some horizons, uh, we can see the Straussians, you know, not really believing in equality or not really believing in modernity even, uh, but in uh, tactically praising those things in an American context, like pretending, you know, that the founding fathers were inspired by Aristotle or something uh, in order to secure an intellectual legitimation for the things about our regime that they were interested in protecting. And then implicitly, you know, maybe modifying or or changing the things that they uh, were not in support of. And, you know, in, in the quote that I read, um, the, you know, this phrase about creating an intellectual elite that's self-conscious about the limitations of our regime, but committed to its defense. So, you know, one thing that I think is, is useful about Straussianism perhaps is that it's quite explicit about that, um, about that being the kind of purpose and function um, yeah, ironically, right? Yeah. I mean, they, they ironically tell us. <clears throat> yeah, which, you know, is, I, I would say is something that's a lot less clear when it comes to how people seem to talk about, um, you know, people within these, say, Foucauldian or Derridian circles, you know, talk about or understand what they're doing, which, which in effect is that, right? <laughs> but, but on some level, they're, they're, um, they're either in denial about it or in some way, um, uncomfortable with the fact that 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 is essentially the the social function that they're they're serving um yeah i mean do you have a sense of of that um and i don't know is 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 there some more subtle way that perhaps people in the, involved in those kind of projects have have conceded that point or do you agree with yeah, me I mean, that it's somehow to some extent disavowed even though it is the the obvious reality of the the project yeah there, this is something that um i i have a piece that I, I wrote for a tablet coming out at the end of the month where I, I've just started to think about like what I'm doing in the classroom. So I, I have a kind of piece about like moral education of, of students um, and like how it is that we're shaping subjects um, because the Straussians love to think openly about what they're doing. And uh, I mean, yeah, I have some Straussian colleagues my age who are like openly grooming undergraduates in a way that I find actually really disturbing. Um, but they're they're into it, right? I mean, they have a kind of glee, um, like, oh, I convinced this kid to be an atheist, like, great. Um, whereas, I don't, you know, we have a kind of like, right, so, so, so let's say like my um, centrist progressive colleagues don't openly imagine themselves as agents of moral transformation, but I mean, definitely act as like, you know, oh, I had a student with a problematic opinion and what am I going to do about them? And, you know, um, but somehow they don't see that as... Uh, shaping character or as, as, as subjectifying. Um, I, I don't, I don't know what, I don't know quite what they think it is that they're doing, but they are doing that just in a particularly terrible and um, sort of school marmish way. Uh, and then the theory people, right. Um, I mean, if you look at the way that Foucault talks um, and I mean, for Derrida, I, I know less well his, his public performance, but I think there's a similar um, regime of opacity, right? Or uh, a performance of opacity, right? Well, I'm not telling people what they ought to do. Um, and there are sort of purposeful disconnections between um, punctual political interventions and the larger project, right? So um, Foucault's Discipline and Punish is, is um, a good example because 
publishes it only maybe five years after he had been involved in uh, anti-prison activism, right? But he, he very much, you wouldn't know that from reading the book, right? There's, there's a performance, in fact, of scholarly neutrality. Um, the book is not about 20th century prisons. Uh, he doesn't connect the dots. He doesn't tell you how to, how to apply the lessons of the text. Um, and I think, yeah, this is all, uh, this is all quite deliberate. Uh, and, and I mean, at many points in his lectures, there are similar kinds of strategies where like, I, I have an essay about um, society must be defended, where he begins by saying that like this series of lectures is going to be a kind of meditation on what happened in the 60s and early 70s with these movements for um, you know, feminism or anti-psychiatry. How, how was it that we were able to apparently so easily change society? And then he starts thinking about all sorts of other things and never gets back around to the topic, right? And I don't think I mean, it could be that one writes a series of lectures and forgets what one is doing, right? But probably not. Probably, you know, there, there, there's some kind of um, esoteric effect here. And yeah, what's weird about the Straussians is that, I mean, maybe in a kind of classic American way, they're sort of, they're sort of big kids, right? Like, oh, I have a secret. I'm, I believe in secret keeping. Uh, so they just, they just tell you the thing. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think if, if they're right, that that's something that people have do, do and have done, um, throughout the history of, of political philosophy, um, then we should probably expect the other people who have done it to be maybe a little cagier and uh, yeah, less uh, less naive in their avowals of the thing. Um, and and I mean, as for what you know, Foucault or Derrida has as their own politics or their own purpose, you know, I mean, I think it's it can be useful or interesting to attribute some specific attention intention. Um, but right, I mean, I think for 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 is what's it's useful to be able to tell such a story then in order to do some project of one's own, right? So like, I mean, is Foucault at the end of his life a liberal interested in saving liberalism? No, I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, but I think you can tell such a story plausibly and then use him as an instrument in that way, um, which is also something that he very much licenses us to do in his own kind of, um, at one point, you know, he talks about himself as an arms merchant of ideas, right? So he's making these things available to us. Um, and whether or not that's, an entirely accurate self-representation, we can take him strategically at his word in that case. Something uh, related to our discussion just a few minutes ago about critique that, that I've been thinking about recently is I, I've been kind of going back to this um, post-critical moment where there were a number of essays that in some way attempted to either disavow or in some way question the premises of critique. And the Probably the biggest and most impactful was Bruno Latour's Why Is Critique Run Out of Steam? But I also think of um, Sedgwick, who, who you mentioned before, um, on uh, paranoid and reparative reading. And I guess I haven't fully articulated my thoughts about this, but I mean, in Latour, it's actually, I mean, this kind of goes back to the luxury beliefs point, but, you know, he has this little anecdote, unclear how true it is about, you know, well, his neighbor, like, you know, he thought he was like the bold critical thinker or whatever, but now his like uneducated neighbor in this village in France is like making fun of him because he uh, believes the official story of what happened on 9-11. And so there is this idea that that somehow there, there's this pop critique, right, which I associate with, um, and this is related to, to what I'm writing about it, which I associate with the, the popularization of the red pill meme, right? And oh, the, yeah. yeah the yeah, matrix. Yeah. Um, so, so there's this, 
Um, you know, and, and we can trace it back much further than that, but there's this sense in which the culture becomes inundated in these kind of popular forms of, of critique. And, you know, it's not just the red pill meme, but the way that it's embraced by all of these seemingly opposed um, groups, right, as, as a way of explaining what they offer as a, as a mode of, of understanding the world um, more truthfully. So I'm curious, um, do you, because I, I was trying to think about this post-critical moment, which basically comes in the first five years of this century, I would say most of the major essays on the subject come out in that period. And then you have somebody like Rita Felsky and a few other people in kind of literary studies who take it a bit, a bit further. But, you know, so there's one way to think about this, which might be... Um, Get, you know, the luxury beliefs version that you were somewhat skeptical of, which is that there's a, yeah, the point at which critique becomes um, popularized is the point at which it, it sort of has to be questioned within these elite institutions because it's no longer, uh, it's no longer a luxury belief. It, it comes cheaply. And Latour pretty much says this, right? I mean, he actually like literally, I think uses something like that language um, about it. It's now a sort of cheap, like mass produced product or whatever. So I don't know if, I mean, I don't know how you see that um, and, and to what extent you perceive that as having um, changed the way that this, um, this sort of set of related methods is, is looked at and sort of disseminated in elite institutions. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, I, I, have, I haven't read uh, the Latour since, since grad school. It would be useful to go back to that and to this post-critique moment, right? Because, yeah, somehow, as, as you say, there's like, there's like a double imperative to rethink critique. One is that, you know, critical ideas have become the hegemonic ideas of our elites. Um, so the fact that they can be used to wield power, that seems, you know, I mean, I think critique would have already told us that, but somehow the fact that now we see that is, is uh, novel and alarming, but also normal people have access to this. And so that somehow devalues um, the, 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 the tool. Um, so, I mean, there's both like the, there's both an anti-elitist and an anti-populist way of being post-critical, I guess. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I see in even my teaching the way that, um, like I used to think it was, it was ironic or at least interesting uh, that like in, in, in the fall, my, my course is, uh, so it's like a year long uh, course. Um, the fall quarter is, is Smith and then Marx. And it's really the, the intention when Moish Bastone imagined this course was that, you know, we would lead students to the wisdom of Marxism as understood through Postonism, which I mean, I don't even understand, but, you know, overcoming the value form. Um, and I used to think, you know, that, well, this is, this is very funny that here I am teaching Marxism to students, 30% of whom are going to be consultants and then, you know, another, you know, similar percentage are going to be in international banking or something. Um, but in fact, it's, it's not at all ironic. Um, and it, I think it really has a legitimating function. Uh, so I've, I've talked to a number of students who've said something like, oh yeah, you know, after reading Marx, I really see it's totally hopeless. So yeah, I might as well get, I might as well get that job uh, at, at McKenzie, right? There's, there's nothing I can do. Uh, so yeah, I mean, yeah, I've had a, a number of students like look me in the eye office and say like, I, you know, I have no choice. Um, I mean, I don't think that's what critique really does, but I, I think the, the way, Part of the like Americanization of, of theory and critique, I think, yeah, is to say, um, you know, we have some systemic problem, right? We have some systemic, which on the one hand is hopeless and unsolvable, but it's very, 
unsolvability then generates uh, all of these um, politically useful practices, right? So either surrendering to the unsolvable problem or like endless, the endless management of systemic racism, right? It's like a systemic problem and therefore we will have endless therapy sessions to uh, you know, monitor our uh, employees' relationship to this problem that we say we'll never be able to overcome, right? So I mean, that, that legitimates these practices forever. Um, the, the, the Sedgwick, uh, though I think, yeah, is, is, is really, I mean, I love that essay. Um, I, I wrote an essay, so a few years ago, I was writing for Quillette, which was a really weird, uh, I was not the person for them, or, um, you know, trying to sell them on postmodernism. <laughs> And that didn't work. Uh, so I, I had I had a piece yeah, uh, on this, trying to say like, oh, we could we could apply the tools of reparative reading to Trump on uh, Trump speeches. And, but um, you know, in that she says that, of course, behind the apparent cynicism of the paranoid reading or of the conspiracy theory, and I think she's totally right to link, um, you know, Freudian, Marxian, you know, whatever kind of paranoid readings to you know everyday conspiracy thinking. For me, that doesn't delegitimate either because right like thinking in the humanities is everyday thinking right and like everyday thinking is sometimes wrong but that's the sort of thinking that human beings do right so if, if we're going to delegitimate the way that ordinary people think then we're already totally fucked right i mean i'm not i'm not a straussian in the sense that i think that like we belong to the brainy super elite in the way that we think is ontologically different from the way that like my neighbors think right if that's that's it then things are really bad um but both paranoid theory and you know everyday conspiracy thinking often have behind them this this weird naivete that once we've exposed the truth, then something politically useful is going to happen. And I forget when she wrote that, but um, you know she's like um, you know she, she, she for instance talks about this idea that like the CIA invented AIDS or you know, crack cocaine or something. And it's like well we. We already see the state allowing people to die and communities to be destroyed by these things. So, like, the state clearly doesn't like. What what would we gain? What would we gain by knowing that this was some kind of inside job, right? Like, how would that make things any more politically useful? There's already obvious inequality, obvious violence, uh, and our we we would like to think that our theoretical tools can see through that to something else and then give us leverage. Um, I mean, for instance, this, this, is, this is another sort of teaching anecdote that um, I, I, I think is, is representative of something that the way we're teaching critique shapes students. Um, last year, we were reading Fanon, and he has this um, essay from 54 on racism and culture, <coughs> in which he says, like, <coughs> you know, the search for psychological sources of racism is a total waste of time. Right? And he says, like, racism is a totally natural and inevitable consequence of um, imbalances of power, right? You know, like the, the colonists show up and they have all the power. So like, you know, racism is created out of that and not the other way around. Um, so, you know, we, we shouldn't be bothering trying to manage the psychology of racism. And so I'm talking about this with students. And uh, I think Bloomberg had then announced his, uh, his candidacy or maybe the first debate had happened in which he appeared. Um, so we're talking about stop and frisk. And you know the students get onto were Bloomberg's motives racist? Can we find the racism in Bloomberg? Um, and you know then I have to stop them and be like, well, look, the text itself is saying like, look, here is the state stopping people on the street and like depriving them of their constitutional rights. And then you're wondering, is the person who thought of that secretly racist? Right? Like, uh, you 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 have 
the, the, the tool of critique in this instance, like gives them a kind of epistemic power over the situation that then also totally distracts us from doing anything about the, the material inequality or the violence or, you know. Um, and yeah, so I, I think there, there's a way in which um, both with the student feeling like disempowered because of critique, like, oh, now I must go work for McKenzie because Marx has shown that uh, the, the, I mean, it, it's the sort of, yeah, the sort of Nick Land, uh, like she's she sort of spontaneously invented Nick Landism. Um, like I must surrender to Moloch because, you know, there's, there's no, uh, Marx has proven that capital can't be overcome. Um, so, you know, from that position to the student, then like looking past actually violating people's constitutional rights to uh, like the imagined unit of prejudice inside Bloomberg's head. Uh, I think in, in both these cases, yeah, critique is working to maybe not make our elite very happy or like good, um, but give them tools for feeling, yeah, give them tools for feeling a lack of agency faced with the, the thing that they're working for, like the beast of capital that they're writing. Um, and then obsessing about um, the invisible sources of our, our very evident problems. Uh, yeah, so yeah, I think between the two of those, yeah, like, the, like right, crit critique as we're doing it in America uh, works very well for uh, these people's interests. Yeah, and I mean, this... A couple things. One, you know, to me, this connects back to kind of the starting point of um, Zizek's project, right, which is uh, this idea of cynical ideology that he borrows from Sloterdijk um, in, in his first book, uh, Sublime Object of Ideology. And, you know, really what he's describing, this is like 1989. And, you know, the way he's describing it is really, I think, actually shaped by the the late Eastern Bloc experience, right? That um, that there you could see the way that that a kind of cynicism um, that you know that that is that is a form of kind of um, popularized or sort of you know low bar to entry critique could you know pr be precisely that which helped the regime keep going, right? And and this is a, a theme that he's come back to quite a few times in his work, and you know so so. That and and I believe this also ties together, you know, sort of populist paranoia or popular paranoia and sort of elite paranoia, right? That that in some sense the reason that we see them functioning um, in and that and that you know, interestingly, they as you brought up themselves become the object of this kind of paranoid critique, right? Where the the anti elitist version is uh, there's this cabal of people who have like undermined our culture by introducing this method of critique, whereas the elitist kind of anti-populist version is, oh, there are these, you know, there are these webs of misinformation that are deluding people into rejecting consensus reality. So, but, but that is itself just recapitulating the kind of shared cynical premises of the entire culture. So, I mean, I would take this as all kind of underlining the the basic utility of that that analysis and way of thinking about you know the the sort of dominant form of ideology and the way that it that it interpolates us regardless of who we are right that and that that we all kind of you know and this is another kind of Zizekian point but like we all we all um you know it's it's not the subject supposed to know from Lacan but it's the subject supposed to believe right we all we all want to project some other who who naively believes something and that's that's part of the structure of this um, this sort of cynical slash critical ideology. But um, but in fact, 
you know, it's just this hall of mirrors where <laughs> everybody is sort of projecting the other as this kind of naive dupe of some kind of um, sinister, deceptive scheme. Yeah, and and I th- so I mean, all of that I think is 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 totally right. The way that there's this um, mirroring in both populist and anti-populist discourses of um, you know each accusing the other of naively believing in conspiracy theories, right? Um, and and then right, it's true that we do, but like you know, both sides are believing in conspiracy theories and then projecting that onto each other, and all of this. Um, conspiratorial thinking is founded on a sort of naivete about what the revelation of truth would do, but that would somehow challenge the system when in fact, like, right. I mean, maybe our elites are Satan worshiping child molesters. How would that be any worse than what they're doing? Right. Like we, we already, they, you know, they got away with the Iraq war. They got away with the financial crisis. Like what, uh, you know, what, what, what is there for conspiracy to reveal? Um, I mean, I think maybe that's something I, I don't necessarily have the tools to, to to think this through, but the way that somehow that's a kind of a reenchantment of resistance, especially through like the idea of, of sexuality with QAnon, that like um, somehow knowing that a handful of people have all of this money and power doesn't seem to generate indignation for us the way that, uh, I don't know, it might have under some, some, in some previous moment. But if we can attribute some kinds of practices to them, that that can actually generate outrage, like that. Act, that actually does something. I mean, the yeah, the people you know, storming the Capitol were, of course, deeply misguided. But you know, somehow they could they could be made. Like we all ought to, in fact, be storming the Capitol, right? Like there should be massive indignation against the system. Um, and yet, yeah, what can actually get the affect mobilized to do that? Um, so yeah, I mean, maybe there is something actually there's a there's a rational kernel to this naive faith that the revelation of the truth would produce some kind of mobilizing energy um not that the thing that they're really thinking not i mean there's no such thing that we're going to find right the evidence that they're you know there's the bunker of the the devil worshipers um but that the search for that somehow does have this um yeah re-enchanting quality that that uh are insights into the otherwise fucked up nature of the system don't um we're, 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 oh, but yeah. you know, I I I I wanted to say just just briefly that yeah, I think maybe what what the Straussian this, or the Strausso-Foucauldian Derridian take can maybe do maybe there's a way through that to overcome the false binary. Yeah, so I mean, all, these people should be great at overcoming the false binary, but yeah, the the the, the false binary between revelation of the truth um, and um, kind of the powerlessness in the in the face of opacity because. Um, you know, for instance, thinking of like, yeah, especially for Foucault and Derrida, you know, we're, we're stuck in modernity and there's no revelation that's going to puncture it, right? Um, or we're stuck in the post-metaphysical, post-ontological, and there's no critical move that can bust us out of it, right? So, I mean, for them, critique has always already run out of steam, right? I mean, I have to go back and look at Latour to see how he's, he's thinking about this, but, you know, they're, they're not thinking like we can think our way through this problem, or at least maybe most people can't. And then, you know, we in some, in some, uh, you know, uh, elite group can do that, but in a way that doesn't actually transform the world. Um, and I think, yeah, maybe thinking through their sense of the, the boundedness of critique, like critique remains bound to the moment that produced it and can maybe push against it in certain ways, but, you know, there's no hope that we will generate a truth that undoes um, the system. There's, there's none of that kind of naivete there that's in the more sort of 
what you know, who, I, I forget who has this phrase of romantic cynicism, but there's 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 not that dimension to what they're doing. Yeah, going back to the just briefly to the QAnon point. Yeah, I've thought about that a lot too. The um, what you know, as you said, sort of why is uh, these that why are these um these you know, and this is the Sed- Sedgwick's point, right? Um, if if we knew that they were sacrificing babies on Epstein's island or whatever, like. What would that fundamentally change given what we know, you know, given what's already in the public record about the terrible things these people have been responsible for? Um, so there, yeah, I I tend to I default to my sort of psychoanalytic um, background and think about some kind of economy of enjoyment where it has to be, um, you know, th- that somehow the, um, the ability to... Um, in some meaningful way, conceptualize the wealthy as as sort of agents is um, is sort of too um, it's it's somehow too distant and abstract, right? So what these kind of lurid stories do is is project this kind of specter of this this subject of of you know this kind of excessive enjoyment, right? Mm, and then mm. and then that's kind of what what activates the um, what you know as you said that that's what activates the sort of rage and resentment in a way that the, um, the, the, just the simple knowledge that these people are, you know, say not paying any taxes does not. You know, so, right, this, this, uh, I mean, Shishik also, yeah, has this about the, the intolerable enjoyment of the other, right? Yeah. Um, and I hadn't thought about this with Trump, but surely that's part of, you know, th- there's this line that like, oh, well, the reason that, Trump generated so much animus, even though in many ways he just continued, you know, the Bush Obama imperial presidency. Um, you know, what was what was so outrageous is that he's publicly, you know, doing a thing where there's less um, hypocrisy or you know there's anger, but also he was clearly having he was having fun. You know, he was having right, a great. Right. You know, he was doing like the <laughs> "it's good to be the king" bit, um, yeah. and not not being serious and sober and, and you know like bombing the people with decorum. Uh, so yeah, he, the, the intolerable enjoyment of the imperial presidency. Well, it's, it's the picture with the, you know, the fast food takeout, right? (laughs) That's, that's one of the, the sort of iconic moments of that, I would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, right. This is the, 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 the fusion of like the king's intolerable pleasure, but also the intolerable pleasure of like the, the poor abject, you know, populist other, like he, he fused those in a really delicious way. Right. And I mean, the fast food is perfect as well, because it's this thing that the whole, you know, sort of elite, you know, metropolitan class, you know, it's it's the thing they sort of deny to themselves and their children. That's sort of part of their asceticism. Right. And so they um, and then then they'll sort of get this co- compensatory version of it with the sort of, um, you know, the, the sort of high end fast food places that you're like, um, you know, Shake Shack or whatever. Um, that, that you're allowed to uh, that you're allowed to enjoy occasionally, right? But so the the kind of um, the just the the pure indulgence of that of that moment um, was was a real revelatory sort of scene. You know, actually, right, you know, now that you say this, it, it is crazy that no one has thought through the kind of uh, the enjoyment of Trump because I mean, obviously, it's very funny. And in, in, in this piece about, you know, reading Trump through Sedgwick, I, I had a bit about, I love Peter Serafanowicz's sassy Trump videos, um, which, I mean, are, are uh, obviously problematic. And yeah, yeah. But I, I think, you know, like reading Trump in this kind of um, stereotypical gay lisp, like you, you, at least I hear more 
one, he talks a lot like me, like these like disconnected sentences and then like looping back around on yourself. Like he talks like a lot of people I know um, and is like, he's having fun. Like he'll stop himself in the middle of a sentence to like cancel it or to make fun of the person he's supposed to be praising. Cause he's, he's really like, he, he is kind of language enjoying itself. Um, and even, you know, I, I think it's not simply that a lot of evangelical voters like held their nose to vote for Trump. Um, but even like, you know, my parents were, were initially like Ted Cruz people um, and didn't like the way that Trump, you know, talked about everyone in the primaries. But at, you know, at one point my mother was like, but he is very funny. You know, there's this, there's like, you know, like, you know, he's like, you're not supposed to like him, but you know, well. Yeah, no, and it, I mean, it, it kind of worked the opposite way with, with some of these more austere parts of the conservative coalition where, you know, similarly to the liberals, there was kind of this background of ascetic self-denial that, that then they were kind of given permission to vicariously enjoy this kind of obscene spectacle um, that, you know, if you look at how they responded in the early phases of the primary, they did have to put on this strong performance of saying, no, this is horrible and disgusting. But then eventually they were, they were sort of given license by, by the other, right. By the, the, they're sort of more permissive allies, I guess, in order to, um, to be able to, to enjoy the spectacle and, um, you know, and, and also to, you know, it's, it was sort of owning the libs, which they were already enjoying in certain forms, but kind of ratcheted up to a, a far higher level of, of sort of art and spectacle. I, I mean, I, I, I really like this because, um, I don't know, there, there was so much discourse about um, hatred and I, I, I forget when people on the right and then in like, you know, political theory learned tumos and now we all have to hear about like what's, what's tumotic. Um, which is, you know, just awful. Okay? Um, but yeah, th- this, this, you know, I mean, Sloterdijk promoted this and yeah, this is, you know, like a concept that's out there now from, from, I guess, from the Straussian. Um, but yeah, there's also a lot of, uh, yeah, there's a lot of enjoyment. And I mean, I, I, I've been thinking in the last year, like, it, it feels like, you know, with Zoom, but also with, with, with our politics, um, that like the libido, like the erotic has been abolished. Um, but yeah, thinking of thinking of Trump as as a figure of intolerable enjoyment, um, and 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 thinking yeah of the way that um, of course people on the the left were like obsessed with him because you can vicariously have that enjoyment in a safe way by you know disavowing it. Um, I mean, he's kind of uh, the political equivalent of like I, I don't know who the last one of these was. It, the, the series seems to have ended, but you know for for a while there was like always some either very young child or like beautiful white teenager who had been, you know, disappeared and then presumably, you know, like a grisly sex murder. Uh, and then months go by and we're looking for them and speculating. And we never say that it's about sex, but there's this, uh, you know, very erotic quality to our, our fascination. Um, and, and Trump was kind of like that politically. We're like, you know, we don't have to, you don't have to avow like what's the nature of the pleasure that we're finding in being so worried about what this transgressive figure is. Yeah, and I mean, an interesting facet of this discourse was the the sort of liberal commentary that was sort of, how can the evangelicals who claim to be, you know, morally upright condone this man, you know? So, <laughs> I mean, but the, and that itself is a kind of enjoyment of the other, right? Because it's this sort of, um, it's this aggravation that, you know, first of all, you think, you know, if you're, a, if you're a sort of average metropolitan liberal, you think of yourself as a, 
a sort of hedonistic permissive type, but in fact, you're this, um, you're, you're this sort of ascetic who um, denies themselves all of these pleasures in the name of these higher ideals. But then you're, you're, so the evangelical is sort of the spectral other who you can then castigate for enjoying um, in, in a way that um, sort of rubs in your face what, what you feel you're sort of denying to yourself. Oh yeah, I mean, and 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 even um, you know, I, I I don't know where the fat acceptance people were on this, but you know, there there was like all of this critique of Trump as fat, and like you know, the famous photo of him playing tennis with his like huge ass, but also of course Trump saying misogynist things and fat phobic things. So, I mean, he he um, yeah, he he brings together the um, like I as you know some like proper metropolitan liberal aesthetic subject, of course, am not fat and do not have any fat people in my life. Uh, and, you know, have all kind of very well hidden uh, negative attitudes about this. Um, but, you know, I, yeah, I both like can imagine Trump's uh, like fat ass and fat supporters and, you know, all of this like kind of materialization of id, uh, like, yeah, like, you know, obesity kind of symbolizing for such people uh, a sort of deregulated enjoyment. Um, but also he's the one who says that fat people are bad. So, you know, I can, I can get him on that. I mean, it's, it's just the position that a virtuous subject wants to be in, right? I mean, it's, it's just the right place. Yeah. And we can think back to some of the debates in 2016, these kind of weird um, gestures that both candidates performed where Hillary brought the woman who was the previous, um, you know, Miss America contestant who Trump had called like Miss Piggy and so on. And Hillary brought her to the um, to the debate, I believe, and sort of announced, you know, she's and it was, you know, it was clearly intended as this incredible coup, right, where she had brought this woman who Trump had um, demeaned and humiliated. And this woman was, you know, now a, a vocal Hillary supporter. And it was supposed to be this, this sort of, I mean, I'm sure you can imagine the kind of you know, Sorkin-esque scenes of the Clinton advisors scheming and plotting this whole thing, right? Um, and then it, it it kind of, you know, it, it played into that whole sort of bizarre complex of issues. Um, but, but then the second one that, I mean, that I still think is probably the most brilliant thing Trump ever did was the, inter- as, can- as a campaigner was, you know, when after the um, the Access Hollywood tape came out, there was the debate and he brought uh, Juanita Broderick and whoever the other Clinton accusers were to the debate. I mean, that was, that was absolutely brilliant. Um, <laughs> but so, yeah, and, I mean the, 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 yeah, the juxtaposition of these, I mean, I, I literally think at least once a month of the, it's just words, you know, or they're, they're just words folks. Uh, yeah, I mean, speaking of like the, you know, the performativity of theory, um, but yeah, I mean, this too, that like is, is for the ways that like a feminist theoretical project might be guilty of the kind of uh, paranoid theorization that um, Sedgwick talks about. Here we have both candidates in their rivalry with each other reviewing the like, I mean, and of course this is the nature of politics, you know, like in the US and, and probably in every country, uh, massive everyday, you know, uh, <laughs> sexual misconduct and violence that uh, these people are either personally guilty of or covering up or whatever. Uh, and there it is like literally on display for us. 
and that in fact has no power like it, it doesn't it doesn't yeah yeah and just um i mean you know clinton is sort of an interesting figure in relation to all of this too because in some sense he served a similar role in the 90s where you had these feminists who could kind of be like yeah he's sort of sleazy and and like a sex creep but but you know he's our sex creep so and we, and we kind of get to enjoy this indulgence in this this enjoyment of this kind of you know the exact sort of sexual norms and mores that we've been trying to um to stamp out um in in our in our support of this figure um and, so, and i mean and, and then interestingly of course clinton and his relationship <laughs> I was like, going to say Clinton yeah, also in his relation to fast food is is kind of fascinating yeah, in all yeah. this and his, you know, then becoming a vegetarian, I think, after he was president. Um, so, you know, that there's so much so much going on with, you know, this sort of sex and food as as proxies for enjoyment. And I mean, I felt personally betrayed by the way that Clinton and Al Sharpton have become these like weird hundred pound ghouls like, you know, they don't look trustworthy. Um, Look, if you're going to be like a Southern politician, a Black politician, you have to, to be a bit round, you know, to, that's part of the, the, the embodied performativity. Um, and yeah, Clinton, like, I mean, he too could definitely be thought about in these terms as like the, the perverse enjoyer. And yeah, I, I mean, in that sense, we can totally think like, not just that it's a, it's a sort of hypocritical um, or tactical move of progressive left feminist, whatever, to like look the other way on, I mean, his many, many, many misdeeds in this domain, but that part of that is even um, vicariously participating in, uh, I mean, the, you know, like what he did with Lewinsky was like so sexually humiliating and so, you know, I mean, this is really like the, the most kind of perverse enjoyment, right? Um, and uh, yeah, I wonder if that's not a feature, right? Like if that's not, if that's not part of how it works. Uh, but yeah, both, both he and Trump are, are great enjoyers. Yeah, and I mean, you know, the point about the the framing of this in terms of hypocrisy is also part of the um, part of the trap of this entire discourse. I would say because there you're. I mean, I I've had a couple of tweets about this, but um, you know, I I think about hypocrisy as like the most cucked mode of politics because it literally it has to do with this scene of enjoyment, right? It has to do with this idea of of this kind of perverse enjoyment of the other's enjoyment where you're, you're sort of the spectator of the other because it generally takes the form and it often takes the form of um, here's that person who's my political enemy doing this thing that I'm not allowed to do. Right. So, I mean, the whole, um, the way the right engages with, you know, instances of supposed racism on, on the left or among liberals is yeah, one good example clear of this. Jealousy, it's like, right? just yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> like, why do you get to do that um, when I don't get to do that? And then, but, but I think, you know, you, you can see that in terms of the, the, the liberal response to Trump, right? Like, why do you get to be, you know, Obama had to um, be this kind of, you know, clean cut, you know, sort of perfect subject, um, and had to be totally scandal free, you know, why, if you're the, if you're the sort of Christian, um, conservative, you know, sort of who present yourself as morally upright, like, why do you get to have this guy who just can fuck around and, and be a, you know, serial adulterer and divorcee and, 
you know, just be totally obscene. Um, like, why do you get to have that when we, it's what we deprive ourselves of? So it's like when you get into that hypocrisy accusation, you're, you're f- immediately participating in that sort of economy of enjoyment problem. Yeah. And I mean, it, it would be interesting to go back to Obama because yeah, I was about to think like, you know, where is, in, where is there going to be any enjoyment like in, in 2021 in this sense? Because, you know, I mean, Biden and Harris do not, do not seem like um, powerfully libidinal subjects. Although surely, yeah, Harris was back in the day when she was with uh, the, the, the mayor of DC. I mean, this must have been. Billy Brown. Yeah, but those must mm-hmm. have been fun times. Um, but yeah, I mean, o- o- Obama, there was like, I, I don't know if like someone ever put out a coffee table book or like documented in some durable way the outpouring of fantasy um, in 2008. I mean, there was, and, and then there was like, I mean, after that, maybe it, 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 it dried up, but you know, there, there were uh, like moments of public pleasure when like Obama would be caught smoking um, or the photo of Obama with uh, the, the joint, like from back in the day, like there, there are these like moments of like wanting to participate in his naughtiness. Um, so yeah, even, even the construction of like squeaky clean Obama, which I mean, probably is, is largely true, but we, we have that also in order to have then the pleasure of, you know, seeing him like out smoking behind the White House. Yeah, I mean, this, well, tying back to our, our sort of main theme, perhaps the the excerpted passage from his autobiography about him, you know, reading theory to uh, hit to sort of hit on girls at Columbia. And uh, the way that that, I mean, but but it's interesting, right, because it, it ends up feeding into the squeaky clean thing, because his point is actually he was unsuccessful, right? He, he was unsuccessful in his attempt to enjoy, right, and to use this kind of ruse, this sort of ruse of desire. Um, so it ends up kind of, it ends up on one hand painting him as this, this sort of seducer figure, but then he's an unsuccessful seducer. So he has to kind of step back from that. And I suppose go on to become the more, um, the more sort of sensible and honorable guy that he eventually became. Yeah. So I, I, yeah, this, this, this is a good, maybe last thing to think there was a kind of crystallization because people loved that. Um, I mean, I, I, I think it was like, you know, Daniel's time as Jenkins and one of these people who was like one of the first, like someone, someone clearly like did a control F through like, oh, cause like the, the day that it came out, someone had found this passage and then put it on Twitter and then, you know, everyone was discussing it. And right. So of course, you know, Obama himself doesn't write this. This is like some kind of committee project. So, I mean, this is about, this is about us as the imagined reader and what we're going to like. And the people writing this were totally correct that we would be really into it. This, this like a vision of the theory cucked Obama and what this is supposed to be doing. Because in fact, like, right, I mean, I first read Foucault like in the fall of freshman year to get with this guy and then did, you know, I mean, Foucault has been getting people laid. You know, that's, I mean, that's why he was writing. And the relationship between like erotic and philosophical activity, that's, you know, that's just the same, right? Like I think the Straussians and the Foucaultians would agree. Derrida, I know less about. I mean, he seems like a family man. I don't know, you know, what, uh, I don't, I don't know who he was fucking. Um, but of course, like, yeah, theory, theory gets you laid. That's part of the whole thing. So the that failing in the story, like this being a kind of like, ha, oh, ha, it didn't. Like, there, there's something very curious about like that uh, performance. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and the, I, I think it might also speak to. Um, the the issue that we talked about earlier about the the role of this kind of training and critique and I mean and that there's and we can think about this in terms of of Cousset's account as well 
but that there's sort of the authorized version of it, right? Which is the the kind of um, what whatever. And again, I think there's there's actually a great lack of self awareness among most of the people who are teaching this stuff. But but whatever the the sort of pedagogical aims in terms of cultivation of an elite that that take place when when these authors are are studied. But then there's also the unauthorized uh, versions of it, which are basically the the Obama. Um, version is an example of, and I think, you know, for anybody who's been through elite education, i.e. most of his admirers, it's just a, it's a, it's a moment that they can recognize and understand kind of, as you were saying, I mean, perhaps in the kind of seductive or erotic context, but also just more broadly in terms of how it, it, it's, it becomes this collection of signifiers that you can use in certain contexts for, you know, gaining a little bit of social cachet or at least attempting to. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, um, the, 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 the story performs this kind of like theory is pure social capital where it doesn't really matter that the theory happens to be called Foucault rather than Althusser or, you know, Sartre or, or whatever the, the theory might've been called uh, a minute before. And yeah, the theory is like practically ineffectual because it doesn't, it doesn't like change Obama's ideas, but also because it doesn't get him laid. Um, it functions as a signifier like in the story and then a signifier to us because like, oh, we also perhaps went to college and, you know, pretended to have read Foucault. So like, it's this, it's this democratizing moment also, right? So it, it's the, it's this weird circulation of uh, a theoretically elite thing. I mean, this is part of what I guess the, the massification of French theory in America does, right? Because it's like part of elite colleges and universities. But I mean, I went to like a liberal arts college in the middle of Arkansas that had a 90% acceptance rate. And I read the same shit, right? So I mean, it's, it's, it's available to everyone, everyone, every, and everyone is able to pretend to be familiar with Foucault for the purposes of enjoying the story, right? Um, so it, 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 somehow the theory both works to secure elite hegemony, but in a way that makes it apparently democratic, right? Because in fact, the, the elites know the theory as poorly as we do, right? They know it as like the, the name on the tin. Yeah, the, yeah. There's something about there's something about the pretense that the theory doesn't do anything. The, the pretense that it's a pure signifier makes it work for these democratically. Right. Yeah, and that's it's interesting. I mean, I um, I had a sort of um, skepticism. I, it's I've had a a, re, a return to Foucault in in a sense in my own life because there was a period when I had a a skepticism about him because of the way that I saw him being used within the academic context. And I mean, it, it partly goes back to our discussion of, of cynicism because, you know, and I, I think this relates to your um, several of your points about him, but I, I saw his, um, you know, being one of the most cited figures um, in most sort of indexes for a couple decades um, and, you know, hence, this is also why he becomes the, the one that you name drop and, the, you know, the one who becomes the kind of choice signifier to deploy at the cocktail party or whatever. Um, but that I, I thought there was some way in which his, um, the particular way that his, um, his work could be sort of taken cynically, um, kind of in a similar way to how you described, you know, your students, um, oh, well, I guess, reading Marx actually supports my idea, I should work at McKinsey, but specifically in the academic context, right? The, 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 this, the ways that he thought about power seemed to me to serve an almost self-mythologizing function for academics. 
and allowed them to elevate what they were doing or, I mean, it allowed them to elevate what they were doing, which is essentially engaging in this process of professionalization that, that in many ways kind of indentured them to these quite backwards institutions as, you know, easily graspable as a, um, a, a political activity, right. That, that could be, um, that could be understood almost heroically. Um, so I don't know if that, I mean, so, so I've, I've somewhat walked back. I mean, I still think there's something to that in terms of the way that he's primarily used. I've walked back my, I mean, my, my history with him was sort of that I, um, you know, I found him immensely seductive and, and, um, you know, absorbed a lot of his ideas relatively early on. And then, gained this kind of skepticism based on the way that I saw him as providing this kind of alibi or, or kind of legitimation for the particular way that, and, and quite cynical way that sort of academic professionalism operated in the humanities and social sciences and the way that it, the particular way that sort of radical ideas circulated in those spaces as a, as a kind of professional currency. And so I, I had this kind of period of hostility or skepticism about his work because of that. But in any case, I've, I've returned to it um, in recent years um, for various reasons. And uh, I, you know, I had this thought like a year ago that like for a long time, I thought like too many people were reading or, or people were reading too much Foucault, but now I think they're reading too little or, or not reading him well enough. Um, so I don't know, just since this is uh, one of the main things you've, you've been writing about recently, um, I wonder, maybe just to close, um, you know, what do people get wrong about him? And and also what, you know, we before we started this, um, before we started recording, we were joking about how, um, you know, sort of in-person interactions have all become like safe sex and in all, in all the bad ways. And um, and therefore, you know, there there are ways that going back to the sort of economy of enjoyment that, um, you know, uh, the Internet has 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 become kind of a a greater site of enjoyment for more people um, precisely because it's been sort of evacuated from normal social life by this kind of harsh aestheticism. So that's sort of one aspect of this moment. But um, I'm curious you know, what do people get wrong about Foucault and how do you see him helping us make sense of this very odd moment that we're living through? Yes, I mean, one, one, one way that like, yeah, getting Foucault wrong and the, uh, the bad enjoyment uh, come together. Again, I had this thing in Tablet, I think in April about um, Foucault and biopolitics and particularly looking at Foucault at this moment in 79 where he you know, comes out infamously in favor of the Iranian revolution um, and then writes a piece about like how that didn't work out, um, and which is titled something like, um, is it, is it useless to revolt? And you this is And, um, you know, in that, Foucault's like, well, right. You know, maybe, maybe that wasn't a great idea, but the, the, the nature of revolt, which is sort of his word for human political agency. Um, you know, I mean, he doesn't like to talk about human nature, but I think that's, he's, he's saying that this is an essential part of, of being human. Um, revolt is this ability to risk life in the name of what he calls spirituality, some kind of some kind of ethos, um, to to throw life away and to refuse the techno-managerial state and non-state systems that um, purport to offer us life and safety, right? Um, and I mean, then in the following years, he's really thinking like, what kind of uh, you know what he calls ascesis, 
um, what kinds of spiritual practices of self-making can help us be the sorts of subjects that at least in some instances can, can resist or uh, modify the, the biopolitical forces that are supposed to be promoting life. Um, and then of course, everyone hated this essay. I think this is the, the thing that I have written that people have most universally disliked. Uh, and a lot of the response was like, oh, but you know, Foucault had AIDS. So like, you know, you're out there saying like, don't wear a mask, Foucault says don't wear a mask, um, was like a, a line that uh, many people uh, attributed to, to me, something like this. And, you know, oh, just like Foucault didn't wear a condom and then he got AIDS. So, you know, you see where this resistance of the biopolitical lead. Um, and I mean, this is like, I, you know, I mean, there's a whole industry of weird biographies of Foucault that are all about him and the death drive and, you know, seeing AIDS is like the truth of his life, which like, I mean, millions of people have gotten AIDS. So, you know, they weren't all Foucault. I mean, we can't, we can't imagine that this is like the product of one uh, obvious psychosexual force. Um, where, 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 right, right. So like Foucault is the bad enjoyer, um, and, the, and, and his bad enjoyment and more broadly the AIDS crisis, um, can delegitimate a kind of, um, discomfort with, uh, the biopolitical regime, right? And I mean, it's, I think the parallels have not yet been really thought through, but it's, it's funny to see now, like, the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Jews and, like, you know, these, these conservative religious groups are the ones who are out there you know, keeping their bathhouses open, right? So like, uh, you know, I mean, they're, they're like the, 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 they're the sort of gay community of this crisis, um, them and Karens, right? And it's, it's been very funny to see on like, I, I, I love, my, part of my bad enjoyment is I love like trashy gay news sites like uh, Queerty. Um, and, and basically throughout the last year, at least once a week, there would be some story about a Karen, like a middle-aged white woman who has a breakdown in public space, refusing to wear a mask, and then all the comments would be saying, you know, this woman should be killed. You know, she, you know, she's so terrible. And I think clearly this is about AIDS, right? This is like a, this is a sort of collective projection onto these people. Like, here's a public health crisis we're not responsible for. They're the bad biopolitical subjects. This time we're good biopolitical subjects, and we don't have this. Well, I mean, yeah, for for for, for Foucault, you know, like the ability to exercise revolt, this ability to have to exercise freedom, is linked to the possibility of choosing death, right? And I think that's. There's something true about that, right? I think yeah, there is. And part of what part of what's horrifying when we see people acting out freedom in ways we don't approve of is that that is somehow connected to the death drive, right? This possibility of refusing to be a proper kind of subject, which is a kind of death. Um, you know that 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 really uh, lights us up. Um, so right, I think part of the are the the generalized misreadings of Foucault is just the way that him as the a symbol uh, seems to activate that. He's can be tagged with like nihilism with the death drive, you know, with all of this. Um, and there's something not false about that. Um, but then, right, the question is like, well, what, what can we do with that, right? Um, how, can we, how can we use a bit of nihilism? How can we use a bit of the death drive um, to, to, to get out of our particular situation, right? Because, yeah, in fact, I mean, if, if he's right, and I think that, yeah, he is on with something only, uh, I mean, Baudrillard also says this, yeah, I have, I have a thing coming out um, in... Uh, maybe a week or so, thinking about Baudrillard's Forget Foucault and, and Foucault. But yeah, Baudrillard also says, you know, uh, in, in Forget Foucault, well, how do we exercise um, sort of resistance to power only by having a kind of challenge that is linked to our ability to sacrifice ourselves, right? We have to um, have a kind of willingness to, to die. Uh, I, I think Foucault was right to remind us of that. And I think the, the, yeah, the point of entry into him is, is, is maybe to think, 
um, what can his nihilism do for us? Um, and what does he do with it, right? Because yeah, by the, by the end of his life, so maybe from this period of 79 to 84, I don't think Foucault ever abandons his anti-humanism or abandons his really um, radical, pessimistic critique of the Enlightenment. But I think, yeah, just like, just like Strauss maybe in the 40s, um, he reframes that within a project of um, securing a certain more positive vision of modernity. So, I mean, you see this in um, his essay on what is enlightenment, um, where he talks about kind of the double heritage. He, he, he steps away from the, the most bleak parts of Adorno and Horkheimer. This is, we also need to think about, you know, the, um, the rational kernel of critique, or we need to think about um, how this can um, provide resources for the sort of self-making practices that we want, which is linked to uh, seeing Western modernity as uh, something from the Greeks, right? Seeing it as from um, you know, the, the Athenian political world and uh, you know, Platonic philosophy um, as, as then kind of filtered through uh, Christianity. Um, and right, I mean, that's a, that's a very sort of conservative project, right? Well, ret- return with a V to Foucault, I guess is the... Yeah, I mean, I, I, am not, I am not a BAP Twitter guy. You know, I have not read his book. Um, but yeah, occasionally, you know, I, I, I see things where, you know, he's like, I, you know, he, he performatively hates Beauvoir and Foucault, even though he did his PhD on Nietzsche. I mean, I, I don't know if it's been confirmed that we know who this guy is, but right, he's like, the, the, um, but like, that's Foucault, right? Like, what, you know, you want to, what do you want to do? You want to be like kind of gay on the beach and like work out a lot and, you know, read Nietzsche, but then go work for, uh, you know, a big bank and then like change it from within, like, that that's that's Foucault. That's Strauss. Like, come on. What? Yeah. <laughs> I I don't know what it it serves these people to imagine that they're doing something other than uh, the, the 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 Foucauldian project. Yeah, I mean, this I think uh, is is probably a this gives me an idea for a future episode, which is sort of BAP through Foucault. Or, or Foucault through BAP. <laughs> yeah, I mean the the the. Yeah, I, I, I have always tried to say at arm's length from like this, because yeah, yeah. the weirdly intense, like homoerotic, homophobic energy and the misspelling, it's all a bit too much for me. Yeah, understandable. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's weird that, um, yeah, the American mind people or like the Claremont people were immediately like, oh, this is, this is the Straussian project, right? This is just like, this is just like Strauss through lolcats, right? It's like the lolcats Bible. Uh, you just like have taken Strauss and like you're performing it in your kind of retarded jargon. But yeah, I, and I think in the ways that Strauss and Foucault are, are very similar, this is also a very sort of Foucauldian project um, where yeah, nihilism takes us back to the Greeks, but then what does it practically do? You know, it returns us to the, the basic structures of capitalist liberal democracy with a sort of in, internal difference, like within our subjectivity. Um, and yeah, it, it I mean, I, I, my trouble with Foucault, right, is that he uh, liquidates Marxism. Uh, he makes it very hard to think about economic inequality and historical economic change. You know, there are people like, I, I, I got an email recently from uh, Bernard Arcourt, you know, telling me, no, Foucault is a Marxist for these, you know, it's like, well, okay, you, you're invested in thinking that, but he did help destroy the French socialist Marxist tradition. Um, I, think, I think that's bad, but if you're a conservative, like if, you know, if you're one of these guys, like you ought to be super into that. Like, you know, the Claremont people ought to be, you know, talking about Foucault every day. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, although on the other hand, it's interesting that your, your example of teaching in this um, Postonian Marxist environment, or at least sort of incubated environment. Um, but, but then your anecdote of the, the McKinsey student, you know, I thought of that when you mentioned it in relation to, you know, that obviously you have the sort of traditional Marxist criticism of Foucault, right? As somebody who, who undermine, who, who helps undermine the sort of political underpinnings of that tradition and, um, you know, and, and brings these other ways of thinking into, into fashion, which um, in some way diffused the French left, which, you know, according to some accounts, the CIA, at least the CIA seemed to have been pretty happy about, um, regardless of... Yeah, why, why wouldn't we? I mean, yeah, Foucault, Foucault yeah. made France safer for America, I think. Yeah, yeah there's yeah. no... Um, or, you know, he's, he's, a, he's the uptake of his ideas was a symptom of a broader historical process. I mean, you know, but by the 70s, the Soviet Union was clearly garbage. Right. The French working class was, you know, shrinking. The... The, the, the material basis for the continuation of Marxist theory yeah. was collapsing. I mean, I think what's, what's weird is that the left, the left always complains about these things in, in fact, non-materialist terms, right? Uh, exactly. Because the, yeah. the French Communist Party wasn't discredited in 56 by, you know, the Soviet tanks in Budapest, right? Because, because at that time, you know, if you were a factory worker, the communists could do something for you, right? Um, and the communists were like, uh, you know, running small city governments around Paris and doing constructive things. They represented the working class in a clear way and could do something for people. And there was a socially homogenous working class. Um, you know, by the 70s, uh, that's increasingly not the case. And by, but it's, it's like in 77, 78, that suddenly the French discover the gulags, right? And Foucault is promoting Solzhenitsyn. Everyone knew about that 30 years ago, right? But people didn't care because the communist could actually do something politically and economically efficacious. Um, so yeah, the, the, the idea that like, you know, he challenged historicism and then the communist collapsed, right? I mean, it's, it's the, it's the other way around. Yeah. Right. And this is, I mean, even though I'm not, I don't particularly sort of say that I'm a Marxist, but I do, you know, generally try to push back against the way that many, including Marxists themselves, uh, just don't, don't think about the material um, conditions in which in which these sort of evolutions of ideas occur. Um, and I mean, you know, going back to your student, perhaps to wrap things up, you know, the problem there, I, as I would I would say, is that you know, because there's no material base for communism of the sort that there was in mid-century France, let's say, um, yeah, Marx does become kind of a collection of signifiers that can be deployed in the same cynical way that, that Foucault or someone else might, might um, in order to help the student come up with some rationale for, you know, going to do the thing she was probably going to do anyway. Yeah. And I mean, you know, the, the, the people in the grad student union or the people at the Verso loft or whatever are just somewhat more sophisticated versions of this, right? Um, I mean, Marxist theory collapsed because the society in which that theory did good for ordinary people no longer held. And so, yeah, we have to reinvent. I mean, I also would like to resist capital, um, but what is the means of doing that? Not, not through a theory that uh, appeals to no longer existent sociological objects. Yeah. And so, and this is why I would say that a lot of the, you know, sort of post-Marxist theory is worth engaging with because if not, um, you know, I, it, it, 
whatever its flaws, it, it can't offer ways of trying to make sense of, of the conditions that, um, that take hold after the collapse of that sort of uh, material and social base that, that made Marxism more potent when it was. So it's probably this a, a good- this, 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 is a, this is a depressing note to end on. <laughs> you know, so the work of theory, uh, you know, there, the there, there's of... something to do, yeah. <laughs> right, <laughs> exactly. Um, all right. Well, thanks so much for uh, taking the time. It's been a fun conversation. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was a delight. Yeah. And uh, everybody just remember, return with a V to Foucault. That's the lesson here.